Now, in 2017, a new version of WhatsApp, the messaging app, I know some of you may be asking, what's that, <laughs> right? A new, uh, WhatsApp is the messaging app, and in 2017, a new version of WhatsApp appeared online uh, in the Google Play Store, for those of you who use Android devices. And within a short space of time when it appeared, it was downloaded by one million people around the world. And then someone immediately realized that the WhatsApp they had downloaded was fake. It was a dangerous app that was created by someone to mimic the original WhatsApp. And this WhatsApp program they had downloaded actually was more about harvesting information from the mobile or planting new programs uh, on there. Uh, they, they, as I said, the developer had cleverly retained all the original features of the WhatsApp um, but, and the bits that they couldn't quite copy, uh, well, they were very difficult for an ordinary user to detect the difference. Um, so, for example, the name WhatsApp Inc., those are the original uh, pro um, developers, that name was still there, but the interesting thing is that the, the space between WhatsApp and Inc., they had put a letter there that sort of just gave the impression that it was one, it was two separate words. Uh, and so forth. So they were able to con people. Um, and as I thought about that, uh, that incident, it, it reminded me just how easy it is for us to be misled when we do not investigate things carefully. We believe in something, but we haven't taken the time to really ask the question, is this what I believe to be really true or not? And sometimes we make those sorts of mistakes, isn't it? Sometimes um, the mistakes we make, uh, like those mobile phone users made, uh, are not life-threatening mistakes. So it's, it's, you know, you got it wrong on the WhatsApp, but you're still here if some of you downloaded that app. Uh, you just learn from it, don't you? And you move on because it's a bad mistake. You are conned, uh, but uh, your life won't end as a result. Some things we can afford to get them wrong. And some things we cannot afford to get wrong. Last month, I took my car for service, uh, the Hyundai service down at uh, Sitka, Black Fen, right? They, and then while it was at the service, uh, I was paying quite a lot of money to do this comprehensive service already. I think I was paying like 300 pounds to do this. And then they called me up and said, well, we've done the service and we found out that the brakes on the car are 80% worn. Right? They need changing. And of course, what do you do? You've already paid 300. I said, how much is it? 110 pounds on top. So I said, yeah, I'm going to pay for that. I, I was already down by 300. And of course, I had no choice but to pay for 110 pounds. Why? Why did I do that? Well, because I cannot risk to get my family into a car with 40 brakes. I mean, how am I going to explain that to my mother-in-law? Eh? If something were to happen, I can't afford that. I can live with a dodgy WhatsApp, but 40 car breaks, nah, I can't do that. Now today, I want to talk to you about the most important thing that you cannot afford to get wrong in your life. And that is where you stand with God. As you sit here this morning, where do you stand with Jesus? Do you have a genuine relationship, a true relationship with God? Now, some of you hear me ask that question and you have already switched off. You're like, yeah, I'm converted. I said my prayer 
1999. You are convinced already you know the answer to that question and you can give a clear answer. But beloved, remember the fake WhatsApp. Many of us think we have a relationship with God, but in reality, we have not looked at this issue carefully. We have not asked, what does Jesus say is a true follower? And that's where we have to go, isn't it? Many of us think we're Christian already because of what people have told us, or what we just picked up in church through sermons and so forth. We have not investigated this issue carefully. You need to investigate it carefully because if you do not have a true faith in God through Jesus, then your life has no meaning and purpose. And in fact, you will spend eternity without God. Your very being for eternity is at stake. So I encourage all of us, regardless of whether you said your prayers in 1900 or you said it yesterday and you repented to Jesus yesterday, I invite you, or you haven't done that at all, I invite all of us to listen to this message Carefully. Do not switch off. Preachers, of course, say that all the time, don't they? We try anyway, don't we? But on this one, I'll repeat, do not switch off. No matter how boring I get through the message. And there is no better place for us to ask that question, what is true Christianity? What does it mean to truly be with Jesus than hearing from Jesus himself? Jesus is the author and founder of salvation. And that's why this passage in front of us in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, is so foundational. We may have heard sermons of what it means to be a Christian, but I think it's important we hear the messages from Mark 8, verse 34 to verse 38, beginning with verse 34. Because Jesus is speaking, is authoritative, is the founder, is the owner of the Christian faith. And he's saying, if you are a true Christian, you'll be like this in verse 34. Listen to what he says there. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would call themselves a Christian, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is speaking to two audiences here, isn't it? The crowd, interesting enough, and he has made the point, it's so important that he's calling the disciples who already think they are Christians to come and listen. This is a church sermon, we might say. And there are three important truths we learn here about what true faith in Jesus is. The first point in your outline is this, a true Christian follows Christ. It's that simple. Christian, Christ. A true Christian follows Christ. The most important question every religion tries to answer is this. How can human beings know God and relate to him? That's what all the religions are trying to answer. And every religion in one way or another says to know God, we must make our way to him. Some say we must keep the moral laws, keep the Ten Commandments, or some other five pillars of Islam. Others say we must tap into our inner consciousness, get in touch with the God consciousness. Try, and you have life with God. Others encourage us to visit all his sites. The list of things people encourage us to know God are endless. The list is infinite. But it is all the same. It is about what I do, right? Except true Christianity. In Jesus, God comes searching for us. 
He comes to be with us. True Christianity says God has come to do everything for us by becoming by coming in the person of Jesus. He reaches to us and says, Be with me. Follow me. Look at verse 34 again. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself or take up his cross and follow me. I hope what strikes you from that verse, what strikes you with that verse is this. Jesus is not saying, follow God. He doesn't say to have life with God, follow God. He doesn't say that, does he? That's not what the word says. He says, follow me. Why? Because Jesus is the creator God himself, entering this sin-stained world to be with you. So he has the authority to say, if anyone will have life with God, follow me. Come after me. Who is me? Jesus, the creator God. In fact, Mark is written to answer that question. Who is Jesus? Right from the start of Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, or God the Son. Later on, when Jesus is being baptized in Mark chapter 1, we see God is one existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They're having, a, they're having if you like, they're a baptism party, don't they? Mark chapter, we read that in verse 9 of chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God the Father speaks. God the Son is being baptized. And of course the Spirit descending on him, empowering him before he goes into the wilderness. Jesus is God the Son, as I said, entering human history, dressed in human rights, to do what? To establish the kingdom of God by calling sinners back to himself. That is his mission. We know that because remember we did Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. Let's read that. It says this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The Kairos moment, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news, the gospel. And then we remember when he interacted with Levi, Levi's party. Remember that incident in Mark chapter 2, verse 16 to 17? Do you remember what happened there? Jesus said this, and the scribes of the Pharisees, Mark chapter 2, verse 16 to 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he, sa he said it to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is God entering human history to call sinners to himself. How? Not just by preaching the kingdom, but ultimately through his death on the cross. Because that's what we read, isn't it? Later on in Mark chapter 8, that's what we looked at last time when we were in Mark. We read that, don't we, that Jesus comes to serve sinners. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. If you back up a little bit, you see what he says there. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and do what? And be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus has come to save sinners by his death on the cross. Later on, we'll see in the next couple of weeks, Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be saved, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why am I going through these verses? I ask myself sometimes that question. Well, I'm doing it now because when Jesus, you may help you understand that when Jesus says, follow me, he's saying, I have come to save you. I am not asking you to clean up your act. I am coming to clean you up. I am offering myself to clean you up. Follow me. Come to me and be cleaned. Jesus is God loving, God stooping, God coming down to rescue you. Jesus is God giving all of himself willingly to be with you, a rebellious sinner. You who by your natural self do not want anything to do with God. So a true Christian then is this, isn't it? Are you a true Christian? Well, a true Christian is one who has true faith in God through Jesus. He or she follows, that's the key word, follows Jesus. Can you describe yourself as a follower of Jesus? Is Jesus your master? Do you think Jesus right now consider you as his follower? Jackie follows me. Jenny follows me. Do you think? John follows me. Does Jesus describe you as his follower? I am not asking whether you have said a sinner's prayer in the past. I am not asking you whether you have a great testimony of how you came to faith in Jesus. I am not even asking you whether you are baptized or not. I am not asking you whether you are a member of this church or another church. Jesus here does not mention anything like that, beloved. Why have we got this idea that being a Christian means accepting Jesus in your heart, saying the sinner's prayer? Where have we got this idea that being a Christian means baptism? He doesn't say anything like that. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He simply says, follow me. So the question for you is, are you truly following Jesus today? Salvation is in the present tense. Are you a follower now? I am guessing many of you quickly answered yourself, yes, of course I'm a follower. But beloved, that is a risky response to that question. It is the wrong response even. Why is that a wrong response if I ask you whether you are a true follower to say yes? I think that's a, I think that's a risky response. It's a wrong response to that. Because it puts you at high risk of being deluded. Imagine when for a second you go for a job interview, right? And the boss says to you, the job is yours, but before I offer it to you, you need to know that to work for us, you must follow me. Then he leans forward and says to you, are you my follower? How would you respond to the boss if he went for an interview? 
I think you saying no is not, you might lose the job, right? You saying yes is also risky. Clearly, the sensible answer is to ask him, if you're still interested in the job, what do you mean? For all you know, answering yes may mean you inheriting the entire company. So you have to ask him, what do you mean? Right? That I'm your follower. That's what I would ask him before I give my answer. I like to know the facts. Unless in the same way, when Jesus says a true Christian must follow me, the right response is to ask Jesus, what do you mean follow you? If you have never asked that question, then I doubt really you are know Christ. If that question doesn't interest you, then I doubt you know Jesus at all. Because you see, unless we know what Jesus means by following him, we cannot be sure we are true Christians. So the next question here is, what does Jesus mean by follow me? He says here, doesn't he? A true Christian follow. we say here, first point, a true Christian follows Christ. Well, what does it mean to follow Christ? And that's our second point. Well, following Christ means dying to ourselves. Not the sinner's prayer, not baptism, none of that. Jesus here says we must die to ourselves. If you like, a true follower of Jesus is someone who abandons any claim over our life. She surrenders all our rights to Jesus, even if it means death, physical death in the future. They have no claim. Those guys being beheaded, who were beheaded by ISIS had come to Christ and said, I am your follower, even death for you. That's what verse 34 says, isn't it? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You are willingly giving up your claim over your life. The key word here, beloved, is deny. Do you know it's the same word that Mark uses later when Peter denies Jesus? That's important. Because what, Peter, what Jesus is saying is this. To deny yourself means to reject or repudiate yourself. You must do the opposite of what Peter did. Peter denied Jesus. I have no knowledge of him. I'm, I've never met that guy before. You must do that to yourself. The truth is somebody who has said to themselves or before God, I do not know myself. I have no claim over my rights. I live only for Jesus. You reject, you renounce, and even repudiate yourself. That's in the original meaning of this word. Imagine you're a homeowner, right? And you run into debt. And your home is repossessed. The bank now has all the rights to your home. A follower of Jesus is the former owner of the home, now living as a tenant in the house that has been repossessed. You lose all control over your life, all rights over it. And you've done that not because it's been repossessed forcefully. No, you've done it willingly. You've come to Jesus. I have decided it's better for Jesus to own all the rights of my life and live for him. I'm handing over, so to speak, to borrow a metaphor from the house, all my sinful debts to him. There he is. I'll just leave here as a tenant. That's a true Christian. Now, I need to be clear here. Jesus is not saying we surrender to him perfectly. 
This is not saying every day you are always just living for Jesus, you still sin, of course. What Jesus is saying is that a true Christian journey starts with a clear and decisive first step of commitment that then grows and grows and grows in your life. It's like marriage, isn't it? Some of you are married here. If you're married, I hope every day you are growing in surrendering more of your affections, more of your desires to your better half. Right? I hope that's happening in your marriage. Marriages can be difficult, of course, but I hope every day you can say, I truly have surrendered more to my husband or my wife than I ever did when we first got married. But do you remember that growth started with a moment of a clear and decisive commitment. When you said to your spouse, there was a point at which perhaps you are dating, you decided, ah, this man is for me. And of course, you then went to, you did your wedding vows, didn't you? You, you stood up and said, I do. I am surrendering my future to you. I want to now live to nature and care for you. I am giving you my heart. You did that. Now, of course, before you still in marriage, sometimes you become selfish, you do other things. Marriages don't always go as we desire them to be. But the important thing is that when marriages are going well, they start, every marriage starts with that commitment. And that is a picture of salvation. Jesus saying, following me starts with a clear heart commitment to deny yourself and give your heart and life to me, no matter what. And if we truly, just as if we're truly married, we really go on to do that. If it's a sham marriage, of course, they never even live together, right? Well, being a Christian is not a sham marriage. It's a real marriage, and therefore, you go on to commit more and more. So, you start off with a clear commitment, and you are growing every day to surrender more and more and more and more to Jesus. That's what Jesus means here. You're dying every day to yourself. And that's what he means by that second phrase. Let's look at verse 34 again. He says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. And notice what he says. And take up his cross and follow me. Do you know that taking up the cross literally here means to carry on your shoulder the cross. Jesus is looking at this crowd and says to them, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be a true follower of mine, you must lift up the cross, carry it on your shoulder, like Simon of Cyrene did with Jesus, or as Jesus himself would do later, and follow me. That is a very horrific image. I want you to just put yourself in the minds of the crowd as they hear Jesus say that. Because you see, at this time in Israel, condemned criminals carry their own cross to the place of execution. And they're not just carrying the cross, often their list of crimes will be written on the cross. And they're carrying it, the Roman oppressors are aging them on as they carry this cross to being crucified. That's what Jesus is saying, if anyone will be a follower of mine, he must do that. Not physically, of course, or it might include physical suffering. But it means he must die to himself. Jesus is saying, Jesus is, it's like Jesus walking in here and saying to us, to be my followers, you must, each of you, pick up an electric chair and follow me to your deaths. That is what he's saying. A true follower is a person who has signed a death warrant on everything she treasures above Jesus. Everything you treasure above Jesus. You've signed a death warrant in it. 
In fact, your whole life has been signed off to Jesus. And beloved, it's important you understand this because this is the opposite of what many of you have heard in church. This is the opposite of what you believe a Christian is. Many of our churches speak of accepting Jesus as my Savior. Is any of that here? Many of our churches talk about being a Christian, somebody who gives a lot, you tithe a lot. Is any of that here? Many of our churches believe a true Christian, somebody who has some sort of charismatic gifts, or, or you have some, 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 you're just very gifted. Is any of that here? No, beloved. Is Jesus asking to be accepted here? By the way, that's the language we use. Becoming a Christian is somebody who was like, I have accepted Jesus in my heart. Is Jesus saying any of that here? Is this a language of accepting Christ or is this a language of surrendering to Christ? Is Jesus begging us here to be with him? Quite the opposite, beloved. Quite the opposite. Jesus here seems like he's trying to put us off. He's encouraging us to look carefully. Count the cost. Do you want to be my disciple? He's not trying to recruit a large church. He's not trying to recruit a large following. Quite the opposite. He wants each one of us to count the cost. He's saying, I cannot just be an add-on to your life. Your end to self must be my beginning in your life. Jesus is saying the salvation I'm offering you through my death is free of charge. You don't contribute anything to it, but it will cost you your very life. It will turn your future upside down. It will change your priorities you live for. It will mean giving up your freedom to run your life. It may cost you a relationship with someone you, you really love. For my sake. It may lead to loss of work. It may mean being hated by your neighbors or even losing your own home, actually, because you've decided you want to live poor for me. It may mean enduring sickness or not having a large family because I have chosen to show my glory through your weakness. Beloved, in a world where everything revolves around yourself, protect yourself, promote yourself, preserve yourself, entertain yourself, have a great future for yourself, comfort yourself. We even say to one another when we live, take care of yourself. Jesus is saying the opposite of that. Jesus here is saying to follow me, you must slay yourself. You must slay yourself. Following me is not about taking back control. It will be you losing control too. This is the message of Jesus. It is a message that we don't want ear preached. We don't want to consider it. Is that another message I heard when when Jesus was presented to me as a young person at the age of 40. But it is the gospel. This is what Jesus means by following. And as painful as it is, 
we must ask ourselves, have I signed up to this? Is this, ask yourself, be honest this morning. Is this what you mean when you say you are a Christian? Because, beloved, if you have not surrendered truly like this, you have not made that heart commitment to Jesus, then regardless of how much mileage you've clocked up, you're not converted. The pastor's opinion of you is meaningless. Jesus' opinion is all that counts. I would have no comfort if Eunice told me I was a Christian if I didn't get the opinion of Jesus. And that's what we must ask ourselves. Jesus is looking at my life. Have I truly surrendered to him? Am I following him? Now some of you are hearing this and say, okay, fine, I get that. These do look like the words of Jesus. But if this is what Jesus truly means, why would anyone do it? I mean, why would anyone want to be a Christian? This is bleak. I think that's a good question. It means you're engaging with the passage. You're asking the right question of this passage. I'll tell you why anyone would do it. Because of the final point here, isn't it? A true Christian follows Christ. What does it mean to follow Christ? The second point. Following Christ means dying to ourselves. But why would anyone do that? Well, the, th- the final point, we die to us because Christ died for us. We die to us because Christ died for us. Do you notice something here, beloved? Jesus could have ended his statement in verse 34 like this. He could have simply said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. He could have just said that. But it doesn't, does it? It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I don't know about you, but it sounds like he's repeating himself there. He's already said, come after me. So why then add, follow me at the end? Why the repetition? Well, the repetition is there because Jesus, you see, is not inviting us to end our way to God. He is inviting us to receive new life from him. Let us be reminded again of Mark 10, verse 45. Where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, to take up his cross, we might say, as a ransom for many. The fundamental problem with all of us is that we are sinners who stand condemned before God. And the penalty of our rebellion against God is death, eternal death, total death. We are spiritually cut off from the very life of God. We die physically because we are already dead. That is our lot in life. This is who we are, dead people by nature. But it's worse than death. We are not just dead. Sin rules over our lives like a slave master. We might say sin is like a great snake. A python or anaconda that has wrapped itself around us and slowly entangles and strangles us every day. We are powerless against sin. You cannot rescue yourself from the penalty of sin. You cannot rescue yourself from this power of sin. And you can never rescue yourself from the presence of sin. You will always be a sinner in your natural self. You need help, beloved. We need help. 
And the good news of Jesus is that he has come to offer his life as a ransom, as a price to God for us. Jesus, beloved, has carried his electric chair and walked it up all the way to the top of Golgotha. And he has sat in it for you and I. He has died for you on the cross. The blood of Jesus spilt on that Roman cross is a precious blood of God. The very blood of God himself. He who is fully God and fully man has laid down his life for you. And it has the power to cleanse away all your sins. Past, present, future. And more than that, beloved, what Jesus offers us isn't just a, a, a new record. By rising from the dead, those who surrender to Jesus, he gives them a new nature. Born again, children of God, infused, indwelt by the Spirit of God himself. He who is unchangeable now dwells in changeability. He lives in them. He powers them. His very life moves within them. The Spirit of God lives in them forever. And those who have this every day, beloved, they are growing to become more and more like Jesus. Yes, they stumble, but they are growing every day to surrender. They can look back and say, I've surrendered more than I did last week. Because every day I'm learning to die to Christ. He's my all in all. And as they are growing to become more like Jesus, they will continue be growing to become more like Jesus until they see God himself face to face. The Son of God, they shall see. That's what the Bible promises. One day we shall see God. Imagine that. No one has ever seen the face of God and lived. Jesus has made that possible for us. And those who know Jesus this way, from that day that they see God, Never again will they suffer. Never again will they sin. You will be... You know what everybody wants? I was listening to a talk show the other day. What is everybody looking for in life? Self-fulfillment. Well, a day is coming where those who are truly in Jesus will be truly fulfilled. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and eternally. That's what the gospel gives to those who have truly surrendered. Life in the new heavens and the new earth, eternally basking in the delights of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, waking up every day to see the face of Jesus. Well, we won't sleep. There will be no darkness. There will be no time for sleep in heaven. We we'll live with Jesus and reign with him. We are reigning to do, the Bible says. That's the future. You know, you are wondering perhaps, why would anyone want to surrender to Jesus? The question is, why would anyone not want to have this amazing God? That question actually is not rhetorical. Because the only, there is an answer to it, why no one would want, would still, despite all of this, they would not want anything to do with God. Despite all you have heard today, some of you will return home just as you can, still living for yourselves. Why? Because all human beings, you see, need the Spirit of God to open their blind eyes to see. Only that person whose eyes have been opened by Jesus can see the cross for its glory. You need the Spirit of God to enable you to truly surrender and follow Jesus. So this morning I can't ask you to say a prayer. 
What I can't ask you to come to faith in Jesus is to cry out to God to open your eyes. To cry out to God to open your eyes. To make you see this is true Christianity. Regardless of what you've heard, it is here. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, beloved. Don't look at you, anything else. Look at this. So ask Jesus to open your eyes to see this clearly. Now maybe you are. God has opened your eyes, perhaps. Only you know that. And you are truly following Jesus. I think he opened Peter's eyes. I think he had opened Thomas's eyes. But I'm struck that they also needed to hear this message. They would not have switched off, beloved, as Jesus was talking. They wouldn't. Because they understand this message is for them. Why would this message be for them? Well, it is for them because we are growing, aren't we, every day? We are growing every day to becoming more like Jesus. True followers of Jesus need to know this message. Why? Because we are still tempted to live for ourselves. The world is still saying, I can offer you something better than Jesus. And so Jesus says this to the, to the 11 and 12 disciples. With a warning there for Judas, I'm sure. He says this to, to, the, to those that truly know him. He says, these words here, beloved, are to encourage you to focus on me. If you can remember anything from this message, it's those, that, those two words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me, beloved. He's saying to his true followers, live for me. And living for me means taking your eyes off yourself. The world, look at me. Look at me carrying this cross for your sins. Look at the lashes I am taking for you as I stagger on the way to the hill of Golgotha. Look at my hands and my feet. Look at them pierced for your sins. Look at me now, I have ascended into heaven. Do not forget that even now in heaven, I wear the very scars of your sin which pierce my hands and my side. That's what Jesus is saying to us. We are tempted to live for ourselves. We are tempted to find Christian things boring, lazy, and so forth. Why do we do that? Because we've forgotten who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We've forgotten who he is. Of course, a true follower of Jesus cannot be like that unsustainably. You wallow in sin a bit and then God calls you back to himself. He restores you and you're now back up and running again. That's a true believer. Picks and troughs but still growing in surrendering to Christ. And true growth, beloved, is not following rules. It's keeping the focus on Jesus, the cross. Meditating on the cross. Meditating on what Jesus has done for you. Are you a true Christian? Well, true Christians follow Christ by dying to ourselves because Jesus has died for us. May the Lord help each one of us to, un to not leave this place without answering this question clearly for us. And may those who truly follow Jesus go on, beloved, go on in surrendering to yourself, surrendering to him, living for him, committing yourself to live and serve God and committing, of course, 
to the family of God to help you grow in surrendering to him. Amen.